There are so many good things about Toronto, but, you know, players don't know that. That took some balls to go up against Bacardi. I don't think anybody in the world in their right mind could blame the record on John Gibbons. Unfortunately, you like to remind me when my stats suck. Welcome to Episode 6 of Digging In with JPR and Sebia. I'm your host, Nick Ashbourne. Today we have a very special guest on the podcast, the smooth and silky voice of Buck Martinez will be joining us to talk all things Blue Jays. He's got he's been a player, manager, and broadcaster. He's seen it from every perspective, and uh, he's definitely a guy with some stories. That's for sure. He definitely is one of those voices for me that stands out. I think you're right, silky and smooth, and it's just it, it's it's got that distinct character. And you know, when I got to the big leagues, it was somebody that I was looking forward to saying my name. Uh, because, you know, you had heard him on the TV as a minor leaguer coming up. So I'm fired up about number six, episode number six, and I'm fired up about the opportunity to talk to the one and the only L. Buck Martinez because he has done a lot of things in the game of baseball. And we're going to start today's episode, you know, maybe not on the most pleasant note. And I think we need a disclaimer here because we're about to talk about uh, the manager, John Gibbons, and I think there are a lot of trolls out there. There's a lot of like fire Gibby people. We're not those people. That's not what we're about. But there have been some rumors. The team is struggling. And I don't think either of us would want to see John Gibbons go, but something even he jokes about all the time. It's something that is becoming more and more like, uh, more and more probable. I don't know if it's, it's going to happen for sure, but Let's talk about what a manager being kind of under fire does to a team. Because in your career at the Blue Jays, JP, you played under three different managers. You saw them come and go. When there's a lot of rumors about a manager or when a manager gets fired, what does that do to the guys in the clubhouse? Well, it depends, right? depends on if the players like the manager or the players do not like the manager. And that's one thing for me uh, that that makes a difference, right? Guys love Gibby. Um, That was something that I got to be around when it was Gibby. So I, I got to be around. So Gibby was around when I was just signed and I was in big league camp with the Blue Jays. Then I get to the big leagues and it was Cito Gaston. And then so Cito Gaston resigns or whatever. So the next year in John Farrell. And then John Farrell gets traded to the Boston Red Sox, which I thought was pretty entertaining. And then in comes Gibby. Well, it's tough on the players because if you think about it, every manager brings in other coaches with them. I mean, I, I would say Butterfield stuck around for the entire time, but all these managers, they always bring in new coaches. So assistant coaches, new hitting coaches, new pitching coaches, all these guys. And so now there's so many things that go into a changing of a manager, obviously personalities, obviously the way you do things the signs that are being that are being uh, given throughout a game the the way that one coach wants you to do something as opposed to the coach before there's a lot of different things so when you switch a manager it's not just the manager that really changes the the whole scheme of things it's all the other coaches so what happens is sometimes you'll see them bring a new manager in and keep try to keep some of the the assistant coaches the guy the helpers because then it at least gives the players more con- constant uh, from season to season. Because what a manager usually does is a message. He's going to give you a message and he's going to have, 
you know, his style of the game, but it's, it's the other coaches are the ones that really affect the change of environment. And so that's, that's the one thing for me is, listen, managers at the end of the day, they write the lineup. They maybe do some in-game in decisions, but it's everybody else that's really kind of holding the fort down. So are managers interchangeable? I, I believe so. I think Gibby is, is one of the better managers that I've, that I've ever had. But um, I always think it's funny to me, this is what I think is funny, is in any other place, you if we're bad, we get fired, um, not the person that's watching over us. And so in baseball and other sports, I always thought it's funny. It's like, hey, the team's not playing well, so it's the manager's fault. Well, what about the people that put together the team? Or what about the guys that are on the field? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that I think Moneyball may be – got us thinking too much that managers are just a middle manager. Like there is important things a manager does. A lot of them aren't seen, but it is true. You know, they, the guys up top made the team, the players on the field are the guys who are whiffing at sliders in the dirt. You know, there's not a lot I think that's wrong with the Blue Jays right now that you can put at Gibby's feet. But in terms of your experience, John Farrell's a name, I think is sort of a, you know, maybe a bad word for a lot of Blue Jays fans. How did that, uh, well, it wasn't a firing, I guess. How did that exit go down uh, in the locker room with those guys? Because I don't know, was he more popular with the players than he was in the media and with the fans? Because I know that uh, a lot of people in Toronto aren't huge John Farrell guys nowadays. So how did that work for you? I mean, it was honestly, uh, we were, I think John Farrell is a phenomenal guy. Um, I think some of the things that were in game, right? You can You can kind of pick at anybody's in-game decisions. A lot of us weren't fans of some of the stuff that, that he had done, but we also knew that his heart was in Boston. I mean, it, it was something that we all understood, and I think that was kind of even uh, portrayed. I remember the media kind of hitting on it and stuff like that is, I mean, he was a guy who really, really wanted to end up. I think that the Toronto Blue Jays were kind of a – stepping stone to get back into Boston uh, and I and we kind of figured that as his players a lot of times we saw that as players and so there was little chatter in the clubhouse about hey you know he wanted he wanted to be in Boston and yada 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 but I mean when he left no one for that time was like oh my goodness that's that's a terrible thing like we were we were you're you're not excited because obviously, like I said, I liked him as a as a person, and I really enjoyed conversations with him and all. The, and I spent a lot of time with him as a catcher. You do with your manager, but no one was sad to see him go. If that may, if that's putting it in a nice way, I think to be fair, I think a lot of people have a quote unquote dream job, and it's not exactly what they're doing this second. And the fact that people kind of resented him for that being known is, is a little bit unfair because, you know, most people in the world aren't doing exactly the job that they want to be doing. Maybe they'd want to be doing a job somewhere else or with, I don't know, a more prestigious company doing the same job. I don't know. I, I always thought that that was a little bit unfair to him. And it's funny, you know, Gibby's great and Gibby, Gibby likes Toronto, but you think Gibby's heart isn't in Texas? Like, you know, is Toronto Gibby's favorite place in the world? Probably not. Like, Toronto's not going to be everyone's favorite. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing, too, is, is Gibby is, is a smart guy, right? And he was a person who was in double-A managing before he got back to the big league. So if you think about it, I think he's, he's a genius in the way that he's communicated about it because if he beats the people to the punch – 
well, then the punch isn't as big, right? Like if, if you're sitting there and you're like, ah, oh, you know, at some point I'm going to get fired anyways and yada, yada, yada. Like it kind of takes out the, the punch to the face as opposed to when somebody's like, because listen, this is inevitable, right? I mean, there's think about managers. Most of them are get their contracts or whatever, they get terminated. They There's not guys that are around for like Joe Torre was really anymore, right? So if you think about it, it's going to happen at some point or percentages say. So if he goes out there and says, yeah, well, you know, at some point they're going to fire me, yada, yada, yada. The blow is different as opposed to if he doesn't ever talk about it, then they're like, well, you're on the hot seat. Well, now he's just like, well, you know, I, I understand that this is part of it. So I think he's smart in the sense of it takes the pressure off of him, right? And I think he's in a good place. Listen, the guy's made a lot of money. I'm sure pension-wise, he's got to be from his career and then all the coaching career. He's got to be almost at full pension. If not, he's at full pension. I mean, there's a lot of things that for him, it's like, okay, well, if they fire me, who cares? Like, I'll be back in Texas, like you said, and I'll, I'll be taking care of it. Now, is he a competitor? Yes. Does he want to win? Of course. And does anybody have a pride and an ego about being one of the better guys? But I think this man this this business beats you up and if and i think he has a real good perspective on the way this business works because think about it he's a guy that got fired then all of a sudden he's you know bouncing around he's the royals a little bit now he's in double a he's almost out now he's back in the big leagues as a manager you know what is the what does he have to lose yeah i think that that's a good point you're right he does he jokes about it all the time because he is. He has enough of perspective to know, as you said, that most managers aren't put out to pasture. Most managers don't get to retire on their own terms. Most managers end up getting cut at one time or another. Is this year, if it's a disappointment, going to be the year Gibby gets axed? You could see that happening. It would be a shame, but yeah, you don't get the sense it would hurt him that much. You don't. I think he's going to be just fine. Here's the honest truth. Here's the honest truth, and this is how I feel about managers. And this is this is. I'm sure a lot of people feel this way that have played the game. I can give you 25 guys on a roster and tell you, Nick, here are your position players. Put a lineup out. Here are your starters. Put them from one to five. The biggest, the biggest part of being a manager in the big leagues is, number one, controlling a bullpen. If you control, if, if you can control a bullpen – you're going to be, if you have the players, right, you have to have the players, but if you can control a bullpen and make the right decisions in the bullpen, you're going to be a contending team year in and year out. That's, if a manager is good, he knows how to control a bullpen. If he's bad, he sucks at the bullpen and it'll hurt a team. That's the number one thing that, that a win and lose for a manager. And the other thing is, is like you said, a lot of things, and, and Moneyball I think is a joke because they, they, it's a team that really hasn't done anything. And so... If you ask players, we're all like, yeah, we don't watch Moneyball. It's stupid. But at the end of the day... The book's better than the movie. I'll say that. The book's better than the movie. book's all right. At, at, yeah, whatever. Rotten Tomatoes, Schmotten Tomatoes. I don't care about that baloney. I, my thing is, is a manager has to be a psychologist. I have to know what gets the best out of Nick. I have to know what gets the best out of Dan. And for people who don't know, that's, that's our Yahoo team. But... Um, that's how I can be a good manager as opposed to just controlling a bullpen. Because again, in the lineup, I can give you a lineup and you can put it together. It's really not hard to go like, 
okay, well, this is our best hitter. We're probably going to hit him second or third. This is our power hitter. We're going to hit him fourth. This is our leadoff guy. You know, like all that stuff, that's really it. So when you when somebody hires a new manager, all you're kind of doing is, one, looking for a new voice. Two, you have somebody has to be the scapegoat, right? Because the front office ain't going to go like, well, we sucked and we put together a horseshit team. They're going to go, well, you know, well, let's let's make a move. And then if that doesn't move, then that's when it trickles back to the front office. But a manager really, especially nowadays, man, it's controlling the bullpen and then being able to get the best out of your players psychologically, right? Like what I think something that Joe Madden does very, very well is he understands how important the brain is to somebody's success. Yeah, I think that we, we touched on this before, but that's the reason why fans clamoring for a manager to be fired for me is really silly a lot of the times because the majority of a manager's job goes on outside the eyes of what the fan can see. It's not on the field. Like you said, it's taking care of guys psychologically and it's taking care of guys' roles and making sure everyone feels comfortable. And it's hard to me measure that. It's hard to say, oh, Josh Johnson is comfortable in his role and therefore he hit a double to the opposite field today. But in a way, that is what happened. No doubt. I mean, it, it, but here's the thing, though. If anybody that understands, it's not just, listen, athletes and business and everything else, all the stuff is, is in the same frame of mind in the sense of if you're comfortable, if I, if I tell you, hey, Nick, this is what you have to do every day at work, okay? This is... I want you to come into work knowing that one, you're going to have a job. You have nothing to worry about. There's no rider that's coming in to take your job. You're our guy. Okay. Boom. Now that gives you a sense of security, which is going to make you not have to look over your shoulder and have any kind of anxious thoughts. So you're going to get the best out of Nick when you go to sit down and write. And I'm just, and then I say, Hey Nick, this is what we want you. This is the kind of style we want you to, to write in, or, you know, this is, this is where we want you to write it at. If, if you know, if there's a constant every single day, you're going to get the best out of your players. Now, that's where I think communication gets the best out of people, right? If you know what you're going in for every single day, then you're going to be better because of it. And I think that's something that John Gibbons does very well is he communicates. It's a lot of these old school, think about it. A lot of these managers now are starting to get younger and younger because I think that front offices have started to realize Old school managers, because when they played, it was like, oh, no, you don't talk to the manager. It was like completely like, hey, you're, you're off. You do your thing. I'm the manager. Like it, it wasn't. It was like you just come in, check the work, check in for work and do your thing. Now they're starting to realize how much social media plays into the, the psyche of players, uh, how much the media plays in the psyche of players, how much all these different things. So they need younger people, or if they're not younger, like a Joe Madden, somebody that understands communication. I mean, you talk about Terry Francona, you talk about all these great managers. It's people that know how to communicate. And you have to nowadays because there's so much stuff going on in the world and guys, players know so many things and they're so worried about this and they're so worried about that. And this young kid coming up and taking my job and all that stuff, the consistency of going to the yard every single day and knowing what you're going to get Good or bad, because it could say they could Gibby could be telling you, hey, we're only going to play you once a week. But at least, you know, it's that once a week and you know what you're getting ready for. And I think that's where managers really, really become great managers is being able to communicate that. Well, with all this talk of managers, I'm happy that we have a manager on the show today and no doubt a great communicator. If in a different format, communicating to millions of homes in Canada every night, the one and only Buck Martinez. Talk about 
for you what you see the difference between managers earlier, uh, the earlier days and compared to now in the sense of for me, you know, there's, I feel like old school style was different than new school, even in, in communication, players deal with a lot more stuff, social media, all those things. What do you see different from when you manage to, to managing now? Well, I mean, even from the time I managed in 2001 and 2002, things have changed dramatically. I think <clears throat> players, uh, you know, they have uh, a little bit more control than managers, actually, as far as when they play, when they don't play, how they train, and what they do in spring training. And, you know, I think uh, that's been somewhat uh, changed uh, over the years. And, you know, they'll have their workout routines. They'll have their off-season trainers. They'll have the high-performance people in the clubhouse, and they all kind of dictate how many at-bats they get, how many innings they pitch, when they pitch. And I, I just think the manager has lost a lot of control over that. Buck, uh, we talked a little bit earlier in the show about John Gibbons and how there's often rumors and he'll joke about his job security even. If a manager is in a situation like that where people are speculating about his job security, how could that affect his ability to do his job? Well, everybody hears those rumors, but you can't focus on that. Uh, I got fired at the end of in June of 2002, and there was rumors uh, from spring training on. And I think you just have to eliminate that. Uh, as long as you're the manager, you have a job to do, and I think that's what John's doing right now. You know, there's speculation, but uh, I don't think anybody in the world in their right mind could blame the record on John Gibbons, given the fact he's lost so many players. He's had underperforming players. They just haven't produced as a team, and I don't think you can put that on John Gibbons by any means. And, uh, you know, I don't know that it's uh, something that's uh, going to happen, but uh, certainly there's starting to be some rumors about it. Buck, you got to – in 2006, I got to play in the, in the World Baseball Classic. You got to manage, and obviously coming into a clubhouse with all those players – you have any stories from from that that World Baseball Classic, and then how awesome was it to come to the yard every day, going, "Holy smokes, look at this this team in this in this clubhouse." Yeah, 2006 was very special because it was first uh, the first time that the WBC was going to be held, and secondly, because of the uh, cast of characters we had on the team, it was incredible the players that committed to play for Team USA in a tournament that nobody knew much about. And I think that was the benefit of uh, you know this group of guys when you had Chipper Jones and Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter and then Michael Young and then Tim Griffey Jr. and Roger Clemens. Uh, the team was stacked, but because of the setup of the uh, tournament, uh, we didn't have much time to work. And uh, our guys are more creatures of repetition and uh, at-bats and innings and spring training to get ready, and we just weren't ready to play when that tournament started. Did they tell you? I always wondered when when there a team allows the guys to play in the world baseball classic was there specific instructions with hey you have to use this guy this way or was it you know hey turn key you you know you do what you need to do whenever i recruited players i told them everybody that committed to our team was going to get a chance to start because they had given up their time and they had uh, promised that uh, they would commit to our team so i just knew that I had to commit to them at the same time. So, yeah, I promised every one of them that they'd get a chance to start. And I think that kind of, you know, that was a challenge. But at the same time, they had committed to be part of this for the first time. And I was going to commit to them that they wouldn't miss time for spring training. All right, Buck, I want to draw on your uh, broadcasting experience now and ask you about the famous call now, which is get up ball. And I want to know, when that first came to you, when you kind of knew that that was a hit, 
and what you think of the Blue Jays doing an alarm clock uh, giveaway with your signature call later this year in September? <laughs> yeah, it's a combination of things. Um, you know, when I was in Milwaukee and, and played for the Brewers and Bob Uecker was there for so many years, and I have such tremendous respect for him. And, um, you know, he always used to talk about get up, get out of here, gone. And, you know, and JP knows this, when you're a player and when you're in the dugout and somebody hits the ball toward the fence, everybody in the bench goes, get up, ball, get up, ball. And they're just talking to it. And that kind of came about naturally. And um, it was, I never, ever thought about a home run call. I never sat down and thought about what I was going to say if there would be a home run. But it just kind of was a natural progression of things that I have had in the past, uh, some of the broadcasters I've worked with in the past, and uh, just my experience as a player as well. What about that? Uh, what about that promotion? Did they tell you about it beforehand? Was that how did that come to your attention? Yeah, they did ask me about it, and they thought, uh, "What would you do? Would you feel? Uh, would you be worried if this uh, was a good one?" And you know, I'd be kind of honored because so many people have talked about that. So many fans have related to my voice more than anything because on television, we're not heard as much as people might think, and nobody sees as often as they hear us, and. Uh, Everybody can recognize my voice. And, uh, you know, I've had many fans during the course of this summer talk about kind of looking forward to getting that get-up alarm clock. And uh, it's kind of cool the way it worked out. And uh, to be able to have an idea that an alarm clock could use my home run call was pretty pretty cool. Yeah, well, I was telling uh, Nick earlier, I was always looking forward to being able to hear my name called by you because obviously when you're minor league guys, we watch the big league team and we got to hear you. What, what has been the hardest name for you uh, for your call, the home run call? Well, JP, you know I have a hard time with all the names, but uh, you know, I don't know if there's one that stands out. Uh, Edwin Encarnacion's name has always been a challenge because uh, I had a player years ago, Juan Encarnacion, that played for the Tigers. And, uh, you know, I always kind of struggled with his name, so I ended up calling it A-double-E. Double E's hit it again. It was quite easier. Well, and and Buck, you again. You've you've been around for a while, and you've been around uh, one of the toughest plays in baseball. Um, do you think that because of now, in the sense of you can't take out a guy at second base, you, you can't come after the catcher. There's so many different things that you take away with with people being able to get. In, uh, you know, whatever, handle it or police itself, the game in itself, and you have – do you think that that's, that's hurt or made – like made more of these bench-clearing brawls or, you know, guys getting hit? Uh, there's all these quick ejections. Do you think that it's made for worse? It's, it's made baseball a little bit tougher for guys to be able to police itself? I think the, the two rules, the double play rule and the slide at home, has eliminated the most exciting plays in the game. And I think it's taken something away from the fans' experience because if you're down by a run in the bottom of the eighth inning and you have runners at first and third, the job for that base runner at first is to break up a double play so you can score. That has been the reality of the game for 130 years, and I think we've lost that. And now we have made it so easy. Now you have players that are playing in the infield now that can turn double plays, and unfortunately they're being compared to Hall of Famers like Bill Mazeroski in their ability to turn double plays. But these guys don't have to worry about the spikes coming at them, a rolling block at second, somebody with a hard slide trying to take them out. So I think they have changed the game dramatically. 
But you can't block home plate. You can't break up a double play. And I just think it's taking away two of the most exciting plays in the game. And I, I think the game is suffering because of it. Well, do you, but do you think, for example, I get hit, I go, I go to first base, I know that I can go after that guy at second base and it's done. Uh, and if I'm, I flip him, you know, we're even. But now I get hit and you really can't do anything. And then now I come back out, the, the next guy has to get hit or something. I think, do you think that it's been able to, it almost escalates the matter as opposed to take away from, from the matter? Yes, I think it creates a lot of frustration when you know you can't retaliate. And I think uh, there's a lot of ill feelings about that. We saw that with Boston and the Yankees early this season uh, when Joe Kelly had Tyler Austin. I, I, I just think that the players used to be able to place it on the field. Nobody had to tell anybody what to do. Everybody knew that there was uh, an unspoken law of eye for an eye. You take one guy out, I'm going to take one of your guys out. And that's the way it's always been. And um, I, I just think that uh, there's several rules that have uh, added to this frustration. You know, pitchers can't pitch inside. Hitters have armor all over their body. Uh, the strikes have gotten smaller. And I think everything that has been legislated into the game uh, hurts the pitcher. So there's a lot of frustration there. When he can't push guys off the plate. The batters are diving in over the plate. And I, I just think that it's... Uh, it's they, they've messed with the integrity of the game and the fact that the players could always control things on the field and they didn't need outside influences to help them. So, Buck, if you were commissioner for one day, what what kind of rules would you try and enact that could help kind of stem the tide on some of this stuff? Well, there's a lot of things I would do, but the first thing I would do is eliminate the stat cast on the strike zone. I think the pitch cast uh, creates a lot of tension. I don't think players need to know where the ball is. I think players know where the ball is when they're at the plate. I let umpires call more strikes. That would speed up the game. I'd eliminate the double play rule at second. I'd eliminate the collision rule at home. I think the rules are in place. If a runner intensely went at the batter, he could be called out before this is ever implemented. It's always been part of the game. But uh, I, I just think that uh, the strike zone has gotten so small that uh, the games are so slow because everybody is very, very aware. But I would also eliminate the ability for the bench to communicate with the clubhouse on a video review. If your baseball people in the dugout feels like that call should be reviewed, challenge it. And in order to do that, give the teams two challenges instead of one. I think you would speed up that whole process where we don't have to wait on the manager, listening to the bench coach, listening to the video coordinator in the clubhouse. If you think it's a bad call, challenge it on the field and keep everything in the dugout. All right, Buck. (laughs) Before we let you go, we appreciate your time. You've been around the Toronto Blue Jays in some form, player, manager, broadcaster for so many years. What is your favorite Toronto Blue Jays team of all time? Not necessarily in terms of how well they did. Maybe it's just the characters, the stories. What's Buck Martinez's favorite Toronto Blue Jays edition? No, I just think that the 84 team and the 85 teams are probably the best teams that they've played for Blue Jays. They were so well-balanced. There was a great competition. We were in a tough division with Milwaukee and Detroit, Boston, Baltimore, and New York. It was a, a one-division, the Eastern AL East division. It was very deep and very competitive, and there were a lot of characters. We had guys like Cliff Johnson and Al Oliver and uh, Damo Garcia and Dave, Steve, and those guys were, were terrific. I just think the overall balance of the team, the 85 team, was probably the best team in franchise history. And we had a lot of fun playing, and a lot of guys played hard, and we had a lot of real good players. 
Awesome. Well, I appreciate you, Buck. Uh, you're uh, definitely one of the best voices in the game and somebody who's meant a lot to me because I was dreaming about being in the big leagues and, and then, uh, I got to do it and you were there. So uh, thank you and thank you for coming on. You bet. You have a great day. All right. Thanks a lot, Buck. And we're back from that discussion with Buck Martinez. We're going to head down memory lane now because tonight is the first night of the MLB draft. And as such, it's time to discuss JP's draft experiences. There are two. One that you guys are probably more familiar with, getting drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays in the first round. And the second one happens to a lot of players drafted at a high school in the 17th round by the Seattle Mariners. So let's go with the lesser known one first what was that like coming out of high school and getting drafted a little farther down uh by the mariners and did you think about signing well what happens is is that people don't realize in high school there's a lot of things that go into it right when you're in high school you're usually signed to a big division one which the reason why you sign to a big division one is one, because if you don't get drafted high enough, you want to make sure you're at a good school. And two, you use it as leverage. So a lot of these, you know, a lot of players you'll see, they'll sign at the University of Miami. If you're, I'm from Miami, so the University of Miami from the Miami, I signed with the University of Tennessee. It's a big four-year school. And so these guys and scouts and teams know if we're going to sign this guy out of high school, it's got to be for a good amount of money because if not, he's going to go to the university and play for three years, become eligible again, and probably make a lot more. So uh, it, it came down to you know teams wondering how much I was going to sign for. I, I wasn't going to sign for anything less than the second round. Was I a player uh, that, that could have got that? Possibly, but th- I'm thankful I didn't sign. So you know, I got passed up, got passed up. Well, I get drafted in the 17th round by the Seattle Mariners. And what happens is, is they draft guys later, like myself, like high school guys that might have a chance to sign. They draft them later because what they do is they wait to see, okay, is our first round pick going to sign? Is our second round pick going to sign? Is our third round pick going to sign? Because the more and more guys that don't sign in front of guys like myself, then that means that they're able to come later into the draft and offer you money that would take you away from the college experience and, and the opportunity in colleges. So I got drafted and I played that summer. I did really well that summer. And, and that year, uh, market, uh, Tuyasa Sopo, I want to say it was, it was Marcus Tuyasa Sopo, but I could be wrong. Um, he got drafted in the third round by the Seattle Mariners cause they didn't have a first or second round pick. So at the time they, they were thinking that they would be able to, match the money that I wanted to get. Well, Tui, he signs right before the deadline for 2.1 million. So they came to me and said, hey, we, we can't offer you all the money you want. This is what we can offer you. And you know, if not, thank you. So I said, you know, this was my number. You guys didn't meet my number. Thank you, but I'm going to college. And so that was what happened was I was able to use my university and use my opportunities as leverage because I wasn't just all in on the draft. I didn't have to. Some guys, unfortunately, they don't, they don't take that route and they sign out of high school and all of a sudden they, you know, if they don't make it, the percentages say you're not going to make it. You're going to be 
taken out, you're going to be released or you won't get to the big leagues and you're not going to have enough money and you're not going to have any schools. So for me, it was like, well, if I don't get the money, at least I have the university, I'll go and play and we'll see what happens. But then I turned it down. And once you turn it down and you go to a four-year school, then you're there for minimum three years. And if you're a draft eligible sophomore, you have to be 21 years old before the draft. So even though they don't, you've got this number in your head, even though they don't meet the number, is it still somewhat tempting to just be like, oh, here's a bag of money in front of me and I can start my pro career? Is there still like that part of your brain where you're like, oh, this isn't exactly what I wanted, but I kind of no want to do this anyway? No doubt. And it becomes more, honestly, it becomes, it's not about the money. It becomes more of like the, the feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm a professional baseball player. Cause you think about it, right? All of us grow up wanting to play in the big leagues. Like your dream is to play in the major leagues. And so now you have the opportunity to get into a system, which will afford you the opportunity to play well and get up to the big leagues. The thing is, is that for me, if I had a son, I would tell him always to go to college one, two, you think about it, you say a bag of money, but you get drafted and you sign well there's this thing called uncle sam and uncle sam is going to take away quite a bit of that money right out of the gate and so now you get that money let's say let's just let's put a figure let's say five hundred thousand dollars and all of a sudden you you give away you go one hundred and fifty thousand to mr uncle sam you go fifty thousand to an agent because you have to pay your agent at that time, which would be a quote unquote, isn't it? Isn't it not an advisor at that? You get someone in trouble. It would be an advisor. Yeah. You'd be a quote unquote advisor, which which I think is stupid. Let everybody knows what goes on. So it's an advisor. You have to pay that guy the money. So all of a sudden, let's say you're, you're sitting on $300,000. Now you go to the minor leagues, you're not making any money. So you're, it's literally, you're just pulling from your bank account, bank account, bank account, bank account, bank account, and by, if you have the opportunity to get to the big leagues, you're probably almost out of money because the, I would say the average, I think the average at a high school was like maybe six or seven years to get to the big leagues. And so that's why, yeah, it's a quote unquote bag of money if you look at it in the short amount, but in the long term, you get crushed. But again, it's not more about the money. What I was, when I was, Thinking about signing, it was more like, oh my gosh, I have the opportunity to play pro ball, which will give me the chance to get to the big leagues. And I think that's what gets guys more. And then when they get caught in the system, later on, they probably, a lot of the guys regret doing what they did because for myself, you go to college you and you go from the 17th round and now I go to college, I get three years of school done, which I'm finishing my degree now, I'm out of baseball, which I only had a year left. And I became a first round pick and I got three times the money that I was going to get before. Yeah, I think where the line is a little more interesting is with pitchers. Because if I'm a high school pitcher and they're offering a bunch of money, maybe I take it because your arm can fall off. You know, I mean, your elbow, your shoulder can go any day. So maybe if I'm, whereas if you're a position player, I feel like you're more confident that you're going to stay healthy. But may, I guess that's probably not the way people actually think. But that's how I would think. If I were a high school pitcher, with, they were offering me big money, I'd take it. Yeah, but here's here's the thing too, though, right? Is I think that there's a big difference between a high school arm and a high school bat because in the high school arm, you you can't you can't go like, oh, this guy throws 98. Uh, will he still throw 98 when he gets to the major leagues? Right? Like that's 
when this, when a guy throws and has that kind of special stuff, an arm that good fastball and good breaking ball and all that stuff, it's not you're not having to project what it is because you're seeing it right in front of you. With hitters, you have to go, yeah, he hits good high school pitching. Is he going to hit a 95 mile hour fastball? Is he going to be able to hit a ball with wood as far as he hits it with aluminum? So I think for high school hitters. It's a little bit different because that's you're having to really project. You're having to go like, man, can he do this? Can he do that? As an arm, you go, well, no, he throws 97, dude. He throws 97 here in high school, and who would throw 97 in the big leagues? It's it's just a matter of now you develop his control and all the other stuff. But I think that's the, the thing for me with pitching as well is you don't have to project pitching. If you took, It's a guy that throws that hard. You know what you're getting, so you know that this guy – is what he is as opposed to hitters you don't know how they're officially going to develop he, he might be king kong in high school but he gets to pro ball and it's happened quite a bit you see these guys first picks look at matt bush matt bush was a first pick overall shortstop no no I, you can't miss this number one pick shortstop yada 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 and he ends up making it to the big leagues as a pitcher because he could never hit in the minor leagues so that's that's why again Hitters are so tough because you never know what you're going to get. But pitchers, if they stay healthy and he's throwing 97 as an 18-year-old, there's a good chance he's going to be throwing 97 when he gets to the big leagues. And if not, even better. Okay, so you've had your three years at Tennessee. You've improved your stock. Clearly, we've established it was a good decision. You're looking at being a first-round back. How much did you know going into that day? Like how many teams did you talk to? Did you feel going into that day, oh, I think the Blue Jays are going to draft me? Like, what did you think was going to happen compared to what happened? Do you think you can go higher? Do you think you can go lower? How did it work out? Well, the, the good thing is if you have a good quote-unquote advisor, he tells you, <laughs> he, he's, he talks to the teams and he shoots you straight, right? So I kind of knew what part of the draft that I was going in. I know I would be going like the upper third of the first round. I knew that the Blue Jays had a pick. I want to say at 16 and at 21 was their two picks that year. And so for a long time, you know, the, the Blue Jays that year were like the team that was after me. There was teams that were like on me, but they were later in the first round. Like if I, would, if I didn't get drafted by the, by the Blue Jays and I've, when I fell to like, let's say the 30th pick, the Yankees were like, we're, t we're taking you. If, you. if you fall to us, we're taking you. Because I went and did a workout with them, and I was hitting balls over the batter's eye. Like, so they, that was one thing, right? So you know that if, if I fall, I'm going to get to this team or that. But what was funny was for my situation, because I had a pretty easy situation. A lot of guys, they'll call you, this is where it gets hairy, uh, not to get away from my story, but like, you have, let's say, a Ben Attendee, for example, you have somebody calling and saying, hey, with this pick, the third pick or whatever, we, we're going to give you under slot at $3.5 million. Will you take it? And it's like, hey, will you take it? You got to take it. Are you yes or no? Yes or no? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, their pick, they have 15 minutes. And so now you're like, uh, no. Boom. And then they hang up the phone and now you go to the next pick and it's like, well, we have a pre-draft deal. Will you take it at four? Point five, and it's like, uh, yeah, you know, and so guys that are in the top 10 picks like that, teams are calling nonstop going, will you take this? And if you say no, they may not take you, or they still might take you. Or if, if you say yes, 
you, or you, you might say, okay, at the sixth pick, the Cubs are going to give me more money than the fifth pick. So when the fifth pick calls me, I'm going to say, I don't want to sign with them because the Cubs will give me more money. Like, so that's when yeah. it gets really crazy for the guys that are in that top. But for me, I knew that there was a good chance that the Blue Jays were going to pick me. Well, what's funny is after my draft, they, they told me what happened. Well, JP Ricciardi wanted to take me in the 16th pick and the people in the draft room said, we don't have to take him in the 16th pick because he'll still be there at 21. Like the teams that are picking between 16 and 21 aren't going to take him in that pick. And he's like, dude, I, if we lose him, this is my number one guy. Like if we lose him, if we lose him. And so they end up taking Kevin Aarons, who who never really panned out uh, with the 16th pick, a high school hitter. And so now they, you know, they get to the pick, the pick, the pick. And when they come to me, I'm still there. So they take me. But J.P. Ricciardi told me that, and people in that office said as well, that he told them, if he gets picked before the 21st pick, all of you are fired. You're all fired. Because, because he's like, this is the guy that I want to get. This is how this is, I want him. And if we lose him, because you guys, we didn't pick him in the 16th, and we tried to pick him in the 21st to save some money or whatever, or however then you guys are done. And so I knew that I was going to, if I was going to get picked in the 16th, if I didn't get picked in the 16th, I was going to get picked in the 21st by the Blue Jays because the teams uh, in front were like the Phillies or something. They weren't as, as on me as the Blue Jays. So I got drafted. And the funny part is, is for a while, I was like, holy smokes, dude, Toronto Blue Jays. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm from Miami. You know, I went to school in Tennessee. You don't really learn much about Canada when you're in the States, uh, I was like, where am I going? What the heck kind of city am I going to? I'm going to another country. Oh my goodness. And I went to sign my contract and I was like, holy smokes, this is one of the coolest cities I've ever been to. And so it was like, uh, I was excited obviously to get my, my college or my pro career started. But at the beginning I was like, what the heck, where am I going? I'm going to another country. Are you kidding me? And then all I had to do was go there once and go, wow, this place is amazing. So there's two things that make me think of. One, shout out to the scouts in that room who are willing to put their careers on the line to get Kevin Aarons, who turned out to be a nothing player. But that took some balls to go up against Riccardi and fight back for their guy. Turns out their guy was horrible, but whatever. Like, I, I respect that. Yeah, that's that's part of the risk. But I mean, yeah, that was. but it was funny because they tell me the story about that that day in the draft and about how Richardi was adamant. Like, hey, if we lose this guy, you guys are all in huge trouble. Like, this is not going to be good for your for your careers with the Blue Jays. And it worked out, and uh, and I'm thankful. And uh, it was it was one of the coolest things. But it's it's awesome, man. That the problem is is for kids now. A lot of these teams, and what I've kind of understood is a lot of these teams have taken more of a college approach on the way of recruiting. Like, hey, come to our stadium check it out and and you know this is this is cool and all this stuff because that's what you kind of do in college like hey look at what the gear you get and all this stuff and you know if you're drafting the first round do I think that there's that you should sign yeah for the most part I do think you should sign but I mean after that man the guys that take money a low amount of money unless it's like a family need or something it it's so much better to sign out of college because over a long run, if you're, I went through the minor leagues a lot quicker 
because I was three years in the SEC, which I was facing David Price. I'm facing Tom and, Tommy Hunter, David Robertson, Pedro Alvarez. Luke Hochaver was our Friday night guy. Chase Headley was our third baseman. So you're playing already almost a double-A level of baseball. So I was able to fly through the minor leagues and doing it when once I got stronger and all I was ready to I, I think it's tough, really, really tough for high school kids to to sign out of out of high school. But again, if you got all this money thrown in front of you, like you said, it's it's tough to turn down. But it's a really exciting day and could be the best day for people in their lives. Sometimes it's not the best day, it's the worst day because you expect to do get drafted and all of a sudden you're just sitting there and it just doesn't happen like you wanted. And then uh, so it's, it's kind of a, a, one of those, you have to see who, what happens to say if it's a great day or not a great day. I'm I'm sitting here being the polite Canadian. When I say, oh, that makes me think of two things. I say one thing and then you launch into a three minute story and don't let me get back to number two. So I'm going to get back to number two and then we're going to wrap the segment. Number two is I think people in Toronto in this city, and I was born and raised in the city. You know, we know that what a great place this can be. It's a great place to live. I'd say that to anyone. But we don't realize how little a lot of guys would know about it because the majority of baseball players are coming from Texas, Florida, California, and that they're way away from home when they come to Toronto. So if they have some misgivings about being drafted by the Blue Jays, I think that's understandable and not, I don't know, not something anyone should be mad at. It seems logical to me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's and it's a lack of knowledge, obviously. It's a lack of, of understanding, but... Uh, Listen, at the end of the day, it's not even just with draft kids, right? It's not even with guys. Think about the guys that have that free agents. When it comes to free agents, a lot of these guys, they don't even realize like once they go there, a lot of a lot of players, their quote unquote, you know, sneaky or favorite place to play on the road is Toronto because it's a great city. There's so many things to do. The food is great, the people are beautiful. Like there's so many good things about Toronto, but fan, you know, players don't know that. Now, the one thing that's funny is that players get all up in arms is, is, oh, we have to go through customs and all this stuff. And But I think not only is it just the high school guys that get drafted or college guys or whatever, it goes even into the free agent conversation because that, Toronto is a great place to live and play and, and it's a fun place to be at. Um, but it, some people don't want to deal with it, but some people fall in love with it once they, they come as a as a visiting player yeah and also uh, i mean you mentioned uncle sam before canada doesn't have a uh, a mascot like uncle sam but uh you know the government tends to take a little bit more over here than they do in some other places so that plays a role too uh 100 a lot of guys that's one thing when it comes down to free asian dollars is them going uh how much did you say that gets taken out uh here in canada because <laughs> It's obviously you're taxed where you work, and when most of your games are on at home, it's a big hit. So, uh, yeah, all that stuff, and, and then taken away from the draft a little bit by saying that, but all the stuff, because when you get drafted, you obviously you get the U.S. dollars and you get taxed in the U.S. because it's where you live. But, yeah, that, that definitely plays into it. But, again, it's kind of the price that you pay. It's a, it's a great country, and, and it's, uh, you know, the city is a phenomenal city. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm biased, but I think, uh, I think it's worth the price for admission. So we're going we're gonna to finish up here with a little JP trivia, as we do every week. JP is sitting at 7 for 10 right now, which is a, like that's a B-minus average. My parents would not have been happy if I brought home a 7 out of 10, but you know what? It's, that's all right. 
It's you're not, hey, you're not struggling. C's, C's, C's get <laughs> degrees, man. That's what that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> All right. So this one is a bit uh, a bit grim, I guess. We're gonna talk about pinch hitting. So JP, you uh, as a catcher, you actually did not you don't do that much pinch hitting generally, but sometimes you have to come off the bench. And so you have 30 pinch hitting at bats in your career, and you've got only three hits. You got a couple walks, so you're hitting a 115. So this is a an area Wait, how, that how wasn't many, a specialty for you. How many? How many at bats? You had 30 trips to the plate, but you had a couple walks. So I don't know how many official at bats. I think it's 27 or something. So you're hitting 115, but you got three hits and 30 trips to the plate, couple walks and a sack fly, I think. And so I wanted to ask you, because I thought that this might be a particularly memorable moment. You have one RBI as a pinch hitter. And I looked it up and I felt like you might oh, remember yeah. it. So this is for three points. You could really get ahead. I, I'm going to I'm, t- I'm nail this. I'm going to nail this, by the way. I, th- I thought that there was a good chance you would nail this because I don't think it's because this is the only time you succeed as a pinch hitter. I think more so because this was a, a memorable game. But if you can give me the opposing team, the opposing pitcher, and who scored on your one pinch hit RBI, then you will get yourself three points out of three. Okay, well, this is going to be a great story because I'm going to just explain the whole reason why it meant a lot to me. Because 2010, the pitcher was on my team, okay? And the pitcher that was on my team was a veteran guy along with another veteran, uh, Scott Downs and him, they were not the most pleasant to me. They did not treat me very well. Uh, and so I was not a big fan of, of them. Now, did I appreciate them later in my career and understand what they were doing? Yes. But the next year, I did not like them. And I was not fans of them because of the way they treated me when I had just gotten up to the big leagues. So we're playing against the Orioles. And Kevin Gregg is on the mound. And I get it's a pinch for three. I get a pinch hit uh, against Kevin Gregg. And so I'm literally going, I want to walk off this guy and I'm going to scream at him the entire time that I run down the first baseline. And I, I, I was just so fired up for the at-bat because I wanted to end the game on this guy so bad because, again, the way he had treated me and how he was to me the year before. So... The at-bat, I think there was a wild pitch, scores a run, and now all of a sudden it's a 3-1 count, and he throws me a breaking ball, and I hit a base hit into left field. And I literally remember tossing the bat in the air and going, and I know it's explicit. I still don't want to say everything that I called him on the way down the first base because I was so fired up that I got him, and I was like, you piece of shit for treating me like that, along with some other things. Suck that right there. You, I just got a nice game-winning hit off of you. Walk off, go home, go to the showers, suck it. And that's that's why I remember that because I was so upset by the way they had treated me that all I wanted to do was walk off that guy. Obviously for us to win, but I wanted him to feel the the embarrassment or whatever, or the shame or whatever to, to give up a walk-off uh, hit. Okay, so two things. One... To finish the trivia question, you have to answer who scored on the play. And two, 
insofar as you can elaborate, what do you mean by the way he treated me? Like what kind of stuff? Is this kind of like rookie hazing stuff when you're coming up? Like that kind of stuff? Yeah, just, just, you know, they cut my shoes up in Minnesota one time and that became an issue. They froze my shirt. Like just, just stupid things where it's like, dude, uh, let me come to the field and just play. I'm just, I'm in the big leagues. I want to be able to like enjoy my time. You don't have, don't, if you're going to cut my shoes, buy me them, buy me another pair of shoe. I don't care, but they didn't buy me a pair of shoes. And that kind of pissed me off that they cut my shoes up and then buy me another pair. And so just stupid stuff like that. And I was like, listen, man, I'm, I'm all about understanding the, you know, the veteran and if you're a rookie, you can't come in and do things. But I, I mean, I wasn't a, I wasn't a douchebag. I wasn't, I, I, I had made a mistake wearing shoes that I shouldn't have on the road. I didn't know any better. And instead of warning me, you just cut my shoes. So I was kind of like, F you guys. And so, uh, now with the guy who scored, man, I, I mean, I don't even, I'm just going to throw a shot in the dark, uh, um, Edwin Encarnacion. I don't know. I don't know. The uh, answer that we were looking for is now I got to, I'm going to have to confirm this because I just, uh, I had it in front of me. Yeah. Way to go. Okay. Yeah, so way to go. Yeah, that, that, I, I biffed this. I had it in front of me and then I had a, okay. I was right. I was right. Okay. I wanted to make sure. Cause this, this name is like a really big blast from the past. I feel like people have forgotten the man who scored on that play was Chris Woodward. In his brief second tenure with the Blue Jays that people have forgotten, Chris Woodward scored on that play. Wow. Yeah, I did not remember that. Well, Woody's a great guy. I do like Woody. I'm glad. because he And he's doing well with the, the Dodgers as the third base coach. Shout out to Chris Woodward having that one monster season where I think he hit like 28 home runs or something because I think it was 2002. And then the, I had the MLB, the video game, the next year. And he was like incredible. And Chris Woodward had like a one year of being a video game legend because of that huge year he had. I think it was 2002. Well, there you go. So now you know why. And and again, that's that bat was so big because I wanted him to just have to walk off that field, head down. And I was screaming everything that I possibly could scream at him. Honestly, Kevin Gregg is a great guy. I really, I mean, he, I, I really do enjoy him and, Again, I, after I, you know, you realize all the things that go on, and you kind of just grow up and realize that it wasn't as bad as it was. But at the time, I did dislike them very much. All right, I also want to uh, rescind my previous statement because I just looked up Chris Woodward's stats to make sure I was right. It's not twenty-eight home runs; it's thirteen home runs. Thirteen. I, I don't know where that came from, but uh, that's my childhood memory for you. Well, good. I was I, maybe I wish that. You would have been a fan of mine because you would have thought my stats were a little bit better. But unfortunately, you like to remind me when my stats suck. But pinch hitting is hard, and I hated pinch hitting, and a lot of people don't like pinch hitting, especially when you play every day. But I will say that thank you for taking me back to the to the glory walk-off because I want to say that that might have been my only walk-off in my major league career. Yeah, I wanted to you know hit you up front about how bad you were as a pitch hitter, but then ultimately give you something, you know, nice to go out on. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's it's like a backhanded uh, slap to the face. So it's not as, you didn't open hand me, but at least, you know, it was, it was the respect. You, you gave me a little respect on the back end. I appreciate that. All right, that's it for episode six of Digging In with JP and Sevia. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to entertaining you again next week. 